0: I want to thank Teen Challenge. Those testimonies are are inspiring. And I'm going to invite you all to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Galatians 4, 12 through 20. As we go into the message for this morning, as the children leave. Turn to Galatians four, twelve through 20, and just stay there, because we're going to be coming back to that passage in just a moment. Uh, Galatians is the first of what's called the prison epistles. We have, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we have Acts and Romans, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians. If you get to Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, you've gone too far. Actually, it'd be Ephesians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Hebrews... So Galatians is the first of the prison epistles right after 2 Corinthians. Turn there, turn there in your Bibles, and we'll go through it in a minute. We're preaching through Galatians, if you recall. Preaching through Galatians. Let me introduce this. You know, I like to hear hear stories of how God and his word works in someone's life. And recently that hit home for me as I read this story from Reverend Swindoll or Chuck Swindoll. I know him by Chuck because I listen to him on the radio. We're on a first-name basis, though I've never met him. Anyways, uh, Chuck Swindoll shares this. He says, When I served overseas in the Marines many years ago, I had a bunkmate named Eddie. When he found out I was a Christian, he told me in no uncertain terms, Hey, I want to tell you something, Swindle. I didn't come over here to Okinawa to be evangelized. So just back off, okay? Sure, that's no problem, Swindall answered. So I'd, He says, he continues, so I'd lie up on my top bunk and I'd try to figure out how I could get Eddie interested in the Lord Jesus. One day I said, hey Eddie, can you help me with some of these words? I dropped down, a, I dropped down about 40, 40 of my first memory cards. And I said, let's see if I can do these. So Eddie is supposed to help him memorize these scriptures. These verses were verses like John three sixteen and other verses on salvation. So Swindoll says, I began. For God, uh, 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 so, Eddie added impatiently. Oh, okay, oh, okay, I'd reply. For God so, uh, uh, loved, uh, yes, yes, that's it. For God so loved the world. We went through dozens of verses just like that. Fast forward 30 years. 30 years later, and the phone rings one day in my study. Chuck Swindoll answers, hey, Swindoll. Swindoll says, I said, this can only be a guy named Eddie. Yeah, Eddie answered. Hey, you know that trick you played on me in Okinawa? (laughs) Well, it worked. I'm loving Jesus now. Isn't that cool? Isn't God good? Swindoll continues. The power of the word of God never fails to amaze me. It's just as the prophet Isaiah recorded. This is what Isaiah recorded. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 11. The word of God does not return back to God void. God's word will never return empty. It will always serve a purpose, primarily in the lives of those who digest it, who apply it, who memorize it, who meditate on it, who ponder it, who declare it, And by God's grace, who live it out. That's our calling. God's word will never return empty. We are about to open up the Bible. Hopefully many of you have already turned to the passage today. The Bible is an inspired book, and that means that it is God-breathed. Inspired means God-breathed. We must read the Bible with reverence, knowing it comes from God. We do not read the Bible like we read the newspaper or the TV guide or... Reader's Digest, or Facebook, or anything else we read. We must read the Bible differently, knowing it's God's Word and it came from God. So today we're going to continue our trek through Galatians. And today we're going to look at a personal appeal from Paul to the people of Galatia. A personal appeal from the Apostle Paul to the people of Galatia. So let's jump into this. Uh, My theme today is that Paul makes a personal appeal to the Galatians... Based on their past relationship, Paul makes a personal appeal to the Galatians based on their past relationship. So let's read Galatians 4:12 to20. Paul writes, "I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time." Verse 14. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Stop right there for a moment. Right now, you can probably already tell that this personal appeal is very personal. It's a different type of writing from the Apostle Paul. And we have clues right here to the reason Paul came to them. Paul had a bodily illness, and because of that bodily illness, he came and visited them. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Verse 15. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? He's basically saying, what happened to your joy? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Verse 16. So if I become your enemy by telling you the truth, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Verse 18. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So we notice right here in this passage, Paul's writing very lovingly to these people, to the flock that he's a shepherd over, very lovingly. Notice in verse 19, he calls them my children. And he says, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He's got a paternal and a maternal metaphor right there, my children. And he describes this idea of being in labor until Christ is formed in you, like like a, a, a baby in the womb being formed. Different type of writing. One writes, this section of Galatians forms a personal parenthesis in Paul's overall argument for justification by faith, which he resumed and concluded in verses 21 through 31, with one additional proof from Scripture. All right, so Paul has been writing about justification by faith. In other words, we are justified, which means declared righteous. We are made righteous. To God, with God, through faith alone, by Christ alone. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. Paul has been writing about that here in Galatia, in Galatians, to the people of Galatia. He's been writing about that. And now there's like a parenthesis. It's a very it's a personal parenthesis that he's sharing with them. Now, in the next section, verses 21 through 31, Paul will conclude his argument about justification by faith alone. And he'll conclude it with two examples of um, Hagar versus Sarah with the idea of being children of the free woman. We'll come back to that next week. Right now, we're on this personal parentheses. Chrysostom, Chrysostom, I'm sure you all know of Chrysostom, right? He was an early church pastor in the first 500 years of the church, around the 300s. He was back then, and you guys probably read his stuff every day, I'm sure. So, in the original Greek. Well, anyways, Chrysostom, now now you know who he was. Chrysostom observed that whereas Paul in the preceding verses had stretched out a hand to his tempest-tossed disciples, he now brought himself into the very midst of the storm. He had stretched out his hand to the tempest-tossed disciples, and now he brings himself into the very midst of the storm. In his 1519 Galatians commentary, Martin Luther observed, These words breathe Paul's own tears. I love that. These words breathe Paul's own tears. When Martin Luther revisited this text in his 1535 commentary, Luther sought to penetrate further into Paul's mind. Now that he has completed the more forceful part of his epistle, he begins to feel that he has handled the Galatians too severely. Being concerned that by his harshness, he may have done more harm than good, he tells them that his severe rebuke proceeded from a fatherly and truly apostolic spirit. He becomes amazingly rhetorical and overflows with sweet and gentle words, so that if he had offended anyone with his sharp denunciation, As he had undoubtedly offended many, the gentleness of his language would set things right again. So now Paul switches from being harsh to being gentle. I like that. I don't know if you notice it. I don't know if you notice the tender words Paul is using right now. Look at verse 12 once again. He writes, I beg of you, I beg of you, brethren, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. Paul, becomes a, Paul became a Gentile to minister to them. And now these Judaizers, and Judaizers would be Jewish supposed Christians who wanted them to keep the whole law. These Judaizers are trying to get them to keep the whole law, to make them Jewish. And Paul's saying, become as I am, a Gentile, as I have become as you are, a Gentile, to reach you with the gospel. Notice how Paul calls them brethren. He's using a nice familiar term. We could say brothers and sisters. I beg of you, brothers and sisters. He's pouring out his heart. He's pouring out his tears to them. Now he's asking them to recognize they're saved by grace through faith. Now let's talk for a couple moments about verses 13 through 14. In verses 13 through 14, we see how Paul met them. If you're reading through the New Testament or Old Testament, which we all should be doing um, periodically, always read the introduction in a good study Bible. The introduction will share about the background. But we can get a lot of the background to a certain book of the Bible by catching little things like this. Look at verse 13. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. That's giving us some background to the people of Galatia and Paul's ministry with the people of Galatia. He met them because of a bodily illness. Verse 14. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. Oh, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. They apparently were extremely loving to him. So Paul talks about this bodily condition which allowed him to meet them. Think about that. Think about it. Paul was on a missionary journey. He was on a missionary journey, traveling from city to city, declaring the gospel. And he gets sick. There's three different sicknesses, which he might have had, which I'll come to in a moment. But while being sick, he preaches the gospel to them. While being sick, he shares the gospel to them. I don't know how this happened, But that is a divine appointment if I ever heard of one. That is a Holy Spirit-moved divine appointment. Paul is sick. He is very sick. And he shares the gospel to them. If Paul did not get sick, would we have the letter of Galatians? Think about it. That is totally God's providence. Totally God's sovereignty. Totally how God can take a bad situation and turn around and make it good. I'm sure the Apostle Paul could have been crying in his coffee or tea or whatever he drank in the morning thinking, Why am I sick? I'm trying to serve the Lord here. And here I've got this sickness. I'm feverish. I'm chilled. I can hardly walk. Whatever's going on. I can't see. I don't know what's going on. I've been beaten. I've been, the people won't even accept me. I'm serving the Lord. Why is this going on? And the Lord meant it for good. The Lord turned it around and used it for good. That is a divine appointment. A Holy Spirit Spirit moved appointment. We must never miss what God is doing, even in our sicknesses. Never miss what God is doing, even in tragedy. People speculate about his sickness. There's three major theories, and I'm not going to share a whole lot, but malaria is one, which I kind of think might be the most likely. Um, Paul may have contracted malaria when he first came into the swampy region of Pamphylia in southern Asia Minor. This was the occasion when John Mark became disillusioned with missionary life, and he returned home to Paul's great consternation. That's Acts 13.13. It may have been that Paul's original plan was to travel westward toward Ephesus and Greece, but that he was redirected because of his illness toward the higher terrain around Pisidian and Antioch. There, high above sea level, he found a more congenial place to recuperate. On this theory, Paul may still have been in the grips of a terrible fever when he first began his preaching mission in Galatia. Epilepsy might be another one. Malaria is one. A second one is epilepsy. The verb in verse 14, which some translated as you did not scorn, literally means you did not spit out. A common belief was that the evil demon that caused epilepsy could be exorcised or at least contained by spitting at the one thus possessed. So some people speculate epilepsy. A third one could be, and I'm going to mispronounce this, Greg, because uh, he's an eye doctor, Ophthalmia which is inflammation of the eyes or conjunctivitis. Considering that later on Paul talked about writing these letters with with large handwriting, and also Paul referenced that they would have been willing to tear out their own eyes if they could, uh, that certainly could mean that his illness related to an eye disease. However, we cannot know. Regarding the illness being something to do with the eyes, that may be unlikely. Some speculate it, but one commentary shares sacrificing one's eyes for someone else was a figure of speech for a great sacrifice. So Paul could have quite likely been using a figure of speech, meaning they were willing to make a great sacrifice to help him. We really can't know for sure what Paul is dealing with. We do know that God used it for the good. We also know from 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul wrote about a thorn in the side, which could be the same illness. And Paul says that three times, three three times he asked the Lord to take away whatever this was. And the Lord responded, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. Paul met them through this illness, and they were willing to sacrifice for his knees. They helped him out. His bodily condition was not good, yet they still helped him, and he declared the gospel to them. Notice Paul's concern for them. In verses 15 through 20, we see his concern, and let me reread those verses as well so that they're fresh on our mind. Verses 15 through 20. Paul says, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So if I become your enemy by telling you the truth, they eagerly seek you. Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So let's talk about those verses for a minute. Paul asks them what happened to their blessing. What happened to their joy? This could have to do with the joyful spirit they had or the blessing they offered to Paul. Either way, you know, let's talk about joy for a moment. Could it be that they had great joy in the Lord? And they lost it. That joy that the Lord gave them was taken from them. Maybe they had joy recognizing their salvation in Jesus, and now they have lost the joy because they are discouraged trying to live by the law. They had this great joy in the law in the Lord, but these legalists who told them they had to keep the whole law came and trampled on their joy and took it down. Have you lost your joy? The Life Application Study Bible says, Paul sensed that the Galatians had lost their joy of their salvation because of legalism. Legalism can take away joy because it makes people feel guilty rather than loved. It produces self-hatred rather than humility. It stresses performance over relationship. It points out how far short we fall rather than how far we've come because of what Christ did for us. If you feel guilty and inadequate, check your focus. Are you living by by faith in Christ? Or by trying to live up to the demands and expectations of others? These Judaizers were trying to get them to keep the whole law. And they robbed the joy. They robbed their joy of salvation by grace alone. In verse 16, Paul questions if he has become their enemy for telling them the truth. Think about it. They had these super apostles come in and changed the message of the gospel. They totally changed the message of the gospel. They turned the message of the gospel upside down. They inverted it. They made it about laws and legalism and not about grace. They totally changed it. In fact, earlier in the book, in this letter, Galatians, Paul even used the word of how the Judaizers changed the message and he used a Greek word which had the idea of turning something into the opposite, turning something into the opposite. So they changed the gospel. And Paul declares the truth. This whole letter of Galatians is Paul declaring the truth to them salvation by grace alone and Christ alone, by faith alone. Paul is declaring the truth to them, and he becomes the enemy. He becomes the enemy by telling the truth. Have you ever faced that? Have you ever lost a relationship for pointing out the truth? If so, remember, you're in good company. It happened to the Apostle Paul, too. But also remember that Paul fought for the relationship. Paul fought for the relationship. He's he's fighting for the relationship even right now. We must fight for relationships, too. In this short New Testament letter, Paul is pleading with them for them to recognize proper doctrine. We must be careful about trying to win an argument but lose a person. But we still must declare the truth. In 1 Peter 3.15 it says, Always be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within you. But do so with gentleness and respect. We do so with gentleness and respect, with love. In fact, there's another passage where Paul names two people who did him much harm. But Paul says, Rebuke them with meekness, with tenderness. oftentimes we neglect sometimes we truly do become the enemy by declaring the truth but many times we neglect out of a goal of loving someone we neglect to declare the truth we forget if you're a parent or a grandparent you're a spiritual leader of your children, your grandchildren. If you are a paternal or a maternal mentor, a spiritual leader to somebody, if you discipled somebody, you have a responsibility to declare the truth. Paul had led them to Christ, had started that church, and he had a responsibility to declare the truth to them. Many times we neglect our responsibility. Many times we do. And I understand that my children are young, so I've not faced this yet. But the truth is the truth. Parents are called to be spiritual leaders to their children, and that does not change when they get older. And I see from a pastoral side of things, just observing things, I see too many parents neglecting that responsibility as their parents get older. They think they're adults now. It's none of my business. I'm not going to say anything it's your responsibility I'm not saying beat them over the head I'm not saying be a nag I'm saying with prayerful consideration seeking the Lord for great discernment think about how you can approach things sometimes we quit and we don't even realize it we quit being a spiritual parent we don't even realize it we quit by not what we do but what we don't do for example how many of you value worship I think many of you would say yeah we value worship we definitely value worship And then I would say, why do we skip for such trivial reasons? What are we modeling to our children, to our grandchildren? On one hand, we're saying, Jesus is my all in all. You need to serve Jesus. Come to church. Come to church with me. Come on. And then they see us skipping for a football game or a basketball game. Or because we were up late the night before. They see us skipping because family are in town I've heard all kinds of excuses for skipping worship I've heard it they were in town yesterday so I'm tired so I'm going to skip today they're in town this morning well bring your family to worship what are we saying about how important Jesus is if we skip church just because family are in town or just because they were in town yesterday or just because they're coming in later so I got to clean the house I know this is a time for my rebuke okay I've been building this up for weeks okay (laughs) just kidding look how much do we value our spiritual leadership over our children and grandchildren and then how do we treat worship when we come here do we treat it as valuable something we treat with great reverence and respect I'm here to worship the Lord so I'm going to walk in early and I'm going to prepare my heart or do we come late and leave early and talk all the way through it how much do we value worshiping what are we doing some people leave. I got nothing out of worship, Pastor. Well, that's good, because you weren't supposed to. It's supposed to be giving back to the Lord, not you getting something out of it. It's supposed to be coming here and worshiping the Lord vertically. Vertically. That means it's about the Lord. It's not about me. And it's not about you. It's not about any of us. It's about the Lord. You no, know, oftentimes, by His grace and by His mercy and by His truth, He reciprocates and He gives back to you. But first and foremost, our heart must be in the right place where it's about the Lord. There's a great passage in the Old Testament, the end of 2 Samuel. David is facing this heavy curse on him and on Israel because he took a census when he wasn't supposed to. And God gave him three potential consequences, three potential consequences. And ch- David chose one. And at the very end, David sees the, Lord, the, the angel of the Lord coming to destroy Jerusalem. But the, the, the angel of the Lord halts and stops and David goes and seeks the Lord. And it's the place where the temple would eventually be built. David goes and seeks the Lord. And, 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 and he's able to make a sacrifice. And if he makes a sacrifice, the angel of the Lord will stay his hand and quit destroying Jerusalem. And David goes to buy the field, to buy this place where that's at. It's a... Um, A threshing ground. And the guy says, You're the king of Israel. I don't need you to buy it from me. I'll just give it to you. You know what David says? He says, I'm not going to have a sacrifice to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. I'm not going to have a sacrifice to the Lord that doesn't cost me anything. How do we value worship when we come here? Your children, your grandchildren, those you disciple, even if you're not a parent, they could be nieces, nephews, they could be others that you have a paternal and a maternal rule over. They see that. And they see the trivial way we treat the church and we treat worship. And they'll take it one step further. I guarantee it. We can track it statistically. We've seen it happen in this very country. So I encourage you. Be willing to speak the truth. Like the Apostle Paul was willing to speak the truth. But as just as important. Be willing to live the truth as well. Be willing to live what you say value. We worship what we value most. Looking back at the text, verse 17 is simply saying that these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians who want them to follow the whole law, they are trying to get them to seek them instead of Jesus. These false leaders, these Judaizers want them to seek them instead of Jesus, instead of Jesus. The New Living Translation says, those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. They want the attention. They don't want it to go to Jesus. Verse 18 is clear. These people of Galatia were zealous when Paul was with them, but not anymore. Paul's encouraging them. Be zealous for the Lord still. And verses 19 through 20 are Paul's heart. Paul Paul is pouring out his heart to the people of Galatia. Let's make some other applications before we close. Notice that just as Paul really rebuked them, he did this out of, law, out of love. Paul rebuked them, but he did this out of love. Sometimes we are hurt by a rebuke. Sometimes we are hurt by a reprove or a correction. But we must, be real, we must realize that many of these times, the rebuke is out of love. The reprove, the correction is out of love. Paul was quite clear in rebuking them. But that is because he was concerned for their salvation. He was concerned for their salvation. Paul preached the gospel to them. We must also preach the gospel. We are all called to be witnesses wherever we go. We take the gospel with us. We're called to be contagious Christians. Paul preached the gospel to them because he ended up with them as a result of illness. We all must watch for divine appointments. Holy Spirit, opportune times. where The Holy Spirit places you in one place at one time for a particular reason. To share the gospel, to build somebody else up, to encourage someone else. The people of Galatia cared for him. An application is we must also always care for others. They cared for him and did not despise or loathe him. We must do the same. They were willing to give up for Paul. We must be willing to give up as well. And we must not lose our sense of blessing and joy. Seek the Lord by his grace for joy and for blessing. We must speak the truth to people even when it hurts. But pray about it. Pray about it. Pray about it and seek ability to do so with gentleness and respect and love. We must also be willing to accept the truth, even when it is unpopular or hurts, and that can be very difficult as well. Oftentimes we respond in defensiveness from our own hurt. We must labor for people as Paul did for them. He labored for them. I did not write this illustration, but I thought it was really good. Someone writes, I was at the grocery store this morning and heard a loud crash and something shattering. Being nosy, I walked towards the sound and saw some people whispering and looking back to the end of the next aisle. When I walked down that aisle, I saw an older lady. It had hit a shelf and many things had fallen to the ground and broke. She was kneeling on the floor, embarrassed, frantically trying to pick everything up. I felt so bad for her. And everyone was just standing there staring at her. So I went and knelt beside her and told her not to worry. And started helping her pick up the broken pieces. After about a minute, the store manager came and knelt beside me and said, Leave it. We will clean it up. The manager said, Leave it. We will clean it up. The lady, totally embarrassed, said, I, I need to pay for all of this. I need to pay for it. The manager smiled, helped her to her feet, and said, No, ma'am. We have insurance for this. You do not have to pay for anything. Remember that God is doing the same for you as well. Collecting the pieces of your broken heart from all the blows life has thrown at you. God will heal all your wounds. He wants to heal you. He wants to take care of your soul. We can have that same insurance that the grocery store had. It's called grace. And I would only add, God is, healing. God is not just healing blows. He is healing sins. It's by His grace. Grace. God's grace. Join me as we close in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great and awesome grace. By grace, we are saved through faith, not by anything we've done, but by Jesus, by your work on the cross. Jesus, we know that our forgiveness comes by grace through faith, and we must confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. We must believe in you as the only Savior. We must trust in you and commit our lives to you. And I pray, Lord God, that we would all be doing that. If we haven't done it, may today be the day of salvation. If we've confessed we are sinners in need of a Savior and believed in you and committed to you, but we've fallen away, may today be the day of turning our life back to you. Lord, help us all living for you, following you, committing our lives to you. We need your help. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it through you and through the Holy Spirit within us.